From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Jenna Fisher is Global Corporate Officers Sector Leader for the executive search firm Russell Reynolds Associates. Jenna specializes in leading senior financial officer assignments, serving clients across various sectors, including the technology, consumer, healthcare, and retail industries. Her clients include Fortune 1000 corporations, middle market private equity portfolio companies, as well as highly visible pre-public venture capital-backed enterprises. The majority of her work over the last 10 years has been recruiting CFOs, chief financial officers, although she's also conducted assignments for treasurers, controllers, internal audit executives, and division CFOs. Jenna is also involved at the board level, recruiting financial experts to serve on audit committees. She's based in San Francisco. Now, get set to listen and learn from a world-class recruiter about what an executive search consultant actually does and about how to conduct a successful job search by leveraging your network, knowing what you're truly looking for in your career, finding your distinctive gift and being excellent at it, and bringing your family into your career decision-making. Jenna was also a student in my Total Leadership class about 15 years ago, so we talk a little bit about that too. It's Jenna Fisher. Jenna, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much, Stu. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. So, um, matchmaker, matchmaker. Make me a match. (laughs) How did you get into this? Let's start with that, and then we're going to get into some some practical tips that you can offer our listeners who are involved in some way or another in executive role changes and what that means for men and women in our society today. But first, how did you become who you are in your professional life? (laughs) Well, right, because most 16-year-olds don't wake up with the epiphany that they want to be an executive search consultant when they grow up, and I was no different. But I did always have a passion for people. I was a sociology major in college, and before that, I grew up as an only child. And to entertain myself as a child, I literally used to sit in my bedroom pretending I was a talk show host and (laughs) interview imaginary people for hours on end. Um, And now I get to interview real people all day long. So, you know, I'm moving up in the world. Um, But I I do think that in some way informed my passion early on. But, you know, I... Well, of course, that's so obvious (laughs) that you could connect those two because uh, it's, it's just an obvious extension of that interest of yours from early on. And the people who I find who are most successful in their careers have some kind of 
connection to, to an experience like that. So it's really good that you're pointing that out for our listeners. But continue. How did you get from there to here? So um, after college, I attended law school, and I got recruited out of law school to Bain, where I worked as a management consultant for several years, and I developed really a, a real passion for professional services. I loved the heterogeneity of working across different industries, solving different problems. I've always been a really curious person, somebody who is curious not only about people, but loves learning. And so the ability to work with really smart, talented people at the highest levels within organizations like I got to do at Bain was was really rewarding for me. And it was there that I decided that I wanted to get my MBA. And you're, you know, in the process of writing my business school applications around what do I want to be when I grow up, I had a partner with whom I worked closely at Bain. And he said, gosh, Jenna, you know, you're so good with people and clients. Why don't you do something that's related to that? And I thought, what what would that be? And and in sort of that that process of reflection, I realized that I'd kind of lived my life up until that point in in what I call sort of a top ten checklist, where what others thought was acceptable or impressive on paper. And and certainly, I liked everything that I did. It resonated with me. I was good at it. But there was something missing, and that something missing I came to learn over a period of a few months of doing some soul searching and talking to lots of different people who did different kinds of jobs for their careers was I needed to find something that really capitalized on what the best parts of me were and what made me unique. And so rather than just being Mm -hmm. in the top 10% of a field, I could be one of the best in the world at what I did. And, um, for me, that was the epiphany of realizing I needed to combine professional services with something in human capital, and search has been just a perfect blend of those two. So how did you find the courage, let me call it, to uh, admit to yourself, to, to uncover that which was distinctive? Because you probably had other people saying, oh, you're, you should go in that direction or that direction. How did you find, because, you know, a lot of people listening and certainly my students and clients in my organizational life, I I run into people all the time who were conflicted about just being honest with themselves about what they're good at and what what really speaks to their great strengths. How did you find that? Well, I think, you know, that expression, feedback is a gift. I really believe that. And I remember I had... Another partner being that I worked, again, very closely with, somebody who I'm still in close touch with, and I was having a heart-to-heart with him about what he saw as my strengths and where he thought I maybe wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. And I said to him at one point, I said, you know, maybe after business school, maybe I'll just come back to Bain and become a partner here. And he looked at me kind of quizzically, and he said, mm, I don't really see you becoming a partner here. <laughs> and oh, wow. I remember in that moment, I felt so crushed. I thought, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, I, I never been told something like that before. And um, I remember sort of fighting back the tears, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And um, But as he sort of went on to explain, he's like, well, you know, look, we're, we're evaluated in three buckets. One is around the value add, around the quant piece. One is around the client development piece. And one is around the team piece. And he said, you're amazing with clients. You're amazing with the team. But your quant skills, they're, they're okay, but they're not exceptional here. And although I was very hurt in <laughs> that moment, I realized over the the next few ensuing days and weeks that he was absolutely right. And it it actually was sort of the slap in the face, figuratively, of course, Mm -hmm. that allowed me to to sort of 
open up the aperture of what success could be and how I could find something that really did play to my natural strengths and things that I love doing. So, so it really helped to have people around you. That's the second example you've given of people who you work with who advised you, mm-hmm. uh, who, who gave you the benefit of their external perspective on you, knowing you, seeing you in action, and, and having, having a point of view about who you were, what you were good at, and where you might want to go. That, that was yeah. really important for you. It was critical. And, you know, it's interesting because in my job today, I feel so privileged because I'm able to serve as what I I sometimes jokingly say, I'm like the priest or rabbi to the professional world because I develop really deep and confidential trusting relationships with my clients and candidates. And, you know, I think for many people, you get to a point in your career where your spouse, as well-intentioned as he or she may be, may not be able to offer you good career sound advice. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to turn to your friends because they may or may not understand. You may not feel comfortable talking to your colleagues because they may not want to hear that you're thinking about making a change. And so it's really a, a very um, unique role that executive search consultants can play mm-hmm. in helping to echo back to people what they enjoy and where they should consider opportunistically looking. So let's let's get into that some because I I'm interested and I imagine some of the folks listening are are curious to know more about uh, well first working with an executive search firm as uh, well as a, as a candidate what's what's the most important thing for someone to know? Okay, so the most important thing for somebody to know when they're reaching out to somebody at a retained executive search firm is that you, the candidate, do not pay the bills, (laughs) to put it bluntly. Mm -hmm. So our clients, much like any other professional services, accounting firm, law firm, investment bank, the client is the company. So companies, be it a CEO... Your client is the company that's paying you to find somebody to fill a role. That is exactly right. So Mm -hmm. sometimes our client is the CEO. Sometimes our client is the board. Could be a combination thereof. They are paying us what ends up being a lot of money to go out into the world using our network and our prowess to bring back the small handful of the perfect group of people who are exactly what they're looking for. If that happens to coalesce with a candidate and we can make a match, as they say in Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> then <laughs> voila. <laughs> do, 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 do. Then that's perfect, right? Um, and and so um, we endeavor all the time to be getting to know candidates, who's mm-hmm. in the market. But if we were to spend all day long with people who are job seekers, we would not have clients to be able to pay our bills. So I think that is so just understanding the economic model because I think some people just don't know and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But um, well, how does that play out? Like, how does that derail a candidate by by construing herself as the client? What what, what does that what does that do to to derail the process or to make it difficult for you to work with her? Well, so I would say it's more before the onset of the process itself. So as you can imagine. I receive, and many of my colleagues receive, literally hundreds of resumes a week from potential job seekers. Um, And many of them are from highly qualified, very experienced individuals, all of whom I would probably like to have the opportunity to know. But, you know, you do the math on how many hours there are in the day, and 
there just simply are not enough hours. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I will sometimes have people who will become quite belligerent um, about getting on my calendar and continuing Mm -hmm. to send me emails and calling my office numerous times in a week. And that does not necessarily put that candidate in the best light um, Mm -hmm. because it shows a lack of understanding as to how the process actually works. Um, it's great to know and be have people on our radar, but if we don't have a relevant search, it's probably not necessarily a fruitful dialogue for either one of us at that so, juncture. So, how do you get on the radar of a Jenna Fisher? So, when you when you think about how searches get done at the executive level, and I'm, I'm putting board searches aside for a moment, which I also conduct, okay. but those have a different process. But for general executive search, we find candidates in three buckets. One is we are each specialists in our area. So we know, because we're in the market all day long, every day, talking to, in my case, it's CFOs. I'm even married to a CFO, so I'm literally all about CFOs 24 by 7. Um, I know who a lot of the players are already, right? I've done close to 300 CFO searches. Um, the second bucket is sources. There are people that I also know who, for whatever reason, it could be geographical, it could be timing, they could be a little too experienced, not quite experienced enough, but for some reason, those sources may know people who could be the right fit for the role, and I'll also reach out to them. And then the third bucket is, um, it's comprised of, uh, on every search, we have a list of target companies that we very methodically with our research teams will go through, dot our I's, cross our T's, make sure that we're reaching out to all the pertinent people who have the requisite experience those companies who either worked there formerly or there today. Um, layered into all of that is we do opportunistically get people either referred to us by board members, other professionals mm-hmm. that we know and trust and respect who will say, gosh, you really needed to spend the time to get to know my former colleague. He or she was mm-hmm. fabulous. Mm-hmm. So that's so, really, you know, a referral like that is really the best way. Mm-hmm. But if you have a great background, you're free to send it, but just know that I may not be able to talk to you Tuesday at two twenty p.m. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so being referred, and of course that that happens when you have engendered the trust and respect of, of the people who know you and work with you. Exactly. So that's really where it all begins. It is, and you know the the notion of backdoor referencing is so important in what we do because what, backdoor referencing. Can you describe what that means? Certainly. So backdoor referencing, as we all know, at the end of most search processes, people will put forth a list of half a dozen individuals with whom you've worked, be it peers, subordinates, uh, direct reports, and um, or people into whom you reported. But before we get to that point on any search, do know that we're going to be making backdoor calls, calls people off the, the list uh. to get to really understand what you're like to work with, because that's frankly the best predictor of the future. And, and I think of search mm. as a bit of an art and a bit of a science. I mean, there's the science element, which is my clients need somebody who has certain technical skills, experiences, professional achievements and accomplishments that's almost like the table stakes. The differentiator on almost every search is the cultural fit, more of the art, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to understand what are you like to work with day in, day out? How do you deal with failure? How do you deal with frustration? How do you treat people in the organization? And so we will have conversations and leverage our network to really understand that about you. So... So, so cultural fit matters, getting you know, the real data from people who weren't on the candidate's list of referees, uh, that all helps to flesh out the story. 
Um, I wonder if there's a way by which you get at the thing that your mentor has helped you to identify in yourself, and that is what's distinctive or unique about the contribution that this person can make and brings to us. How do you get to that? I think it all starts with really understanding yourself well and understanding your leadership style. And this is something that is definitely a trend and something that our clients are talking about a lot. It used to be thought that there was a bit of a, um, a specific model around what made for a great leader. It was thought that great leaders were people who were heroic and risk-taking and disruptive and galvanizing. And all of those things are true. It was kind of a, a male-oriented view of leadership. Those can be really successful leadership traits. But equally, I don't know if you're familiar with the book by Susan, Susan Cain called Quiet, but you know, what she really postulates and what I've definitely seen play out, particularly in the world, frankly, of CFOs and board members that mm-hmm. might tend to be naturally a bit more pragmatic or reluctant or vulnerable or connecting is that there's an equally effective, perhaps less extroverted, more introverted model of leadership that can sure. also be really viable. Mm-hmm. And we've found in our research here at Russell Reynolds that actually it turns out the most successful leaders are those that can really flex in either direction and be a bit of hmm. a chameleon. So depending upon what the organization needs at that moment in time, you can flex and bend with it to really show and demonstrate those kinds of qualities. So I think one is know yourself, know your strengths, and then two, align yourself to the right kind of culture so that you can be most successful. Hmm. Of course, that requires your capacity to uncover what the cultural fit might be that would indeed work for you. You've got to get pretty deep information about what a, what a company's like and whether or not you would be a good fit there. So how does one do that as a, as a candidate? Yeah, well, this is something that if, you ha- if you're working with a, a really good executive search professional, he or she should definitely be able to help you here because this is something that we spend a lot of our time at the onset of a search around. So mm-hmm. understanding from board members, from the entire leadership team, from peers, from subordinates, from the CEO, what success looks like. So one question I always ask my clients is, if we were going to sit down 12 to 18 months from now and you were to say, gosh, Jenna, you, Russell Reynolds, your team, found just the perfect person for us. He or she would have done X, Y, Z. They would have fit in in A, B, C ways. What are those really tangible ways of not only success Mm -hmm. metrics, but also culture fit? And so your search provider or, or recruiter that you're working with should be able to translate that for you. And if you're not working with a recruiter, then you'll have to ask, I think, some of those same questions yourself when you go into interview. Sure. And hopefully they're being really honest with you about mm-hmm. what has worked and what hasn't. I, I ask questions like, who hasn't worked in this organization and why? Um, mm, that's a good one. Who, who are the best fits for this organization? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the first 60, 90 days on the job, this person needs to do blank. Um, and that's so really of course different. That. I'm sorry. Uh, finish your thought. No, I just I think you know the, the more probing and curious you can be as a candidate, and the more honest the company can be in terms of reflecting on what's worked and what hasn't, the better the outcome will be. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the uh, the personal side of all this and and family life and and how 
uh, how a person's life is affected by a role transition. You've you've seen so much now as the priest, rabbi, friend, uh, uh, partner in this process. What what do you see as the the main challenges? Like, what's the the most critical problem that people face when making? A role transition, particularly at the executive level, but I imagine it, it uh, translates to most job changes. What's what's your wisdom on that? I would say there are three things. One is don't wait too too long to launch a search. If you're starting to feel a lack of challenge, a, a feeling of unhappiness, general malaise, or just it's time to to move on and have that next opportunity to broaden yourself, and it's not available within your company. A lot yourself six to 12 months. It really can take that long. You don't want to be running from something. You want to be running to something. And just as from my vantage point as a search consultant, I will probably talk to on average 100 people for my client to hire one individual at the end of the day. As a candidate looking for a new opportunity, you have to be prepared to make that same Same ratio. Wow. Same proportional investment of talk to 100 companies or organizations that you might want to work in to find that one. Or individuals, absolutely. I think you really have to be ready to do your diligence. The second is, as you think about what you're targeting, don't be too broad. You would laugh if you saw the resumes I get from people where they say, I'm looking for CEO, CEO, CFO, CHRO, CRO. You know, jack of all trades. I can do anything. And no doubt there are lots of really talented people who really could do any number of things with their lives. But as a recruiter, it's just too hard for my brain to bucketize those individuals and really be helpful and targeted. And so, and that's probably true, not just of recruiters, but of just your general network. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, if you're thinking about launching a job search, really think about one or maybe two buckets of jobs that you're looking to do. And be specific so people know how to help you. What makes for a successful transition into a new role? Well, so this is where the third thing I think is important, which is once you're in that new role, don't lose touch with your network, particularly for more introverted people who don't naturally reach out to others. It can be really hard to ping somebody for a breakfast or a lunch, but if you let your network go cold, it'll be that much harder to reinvigorate it when you're ready to do your next search. Mm. And so as you're assimilating and onboarding into your new company, don't lose touch with all of the many people who helped get you there. Mm-hmm. Really, I think it's just so valuable to be staying in touch, even if it's a you know once a year outreach to mm-hmm. people, have a short list of maybe 30 people that you want to make sure you stay in touch with and Mm -hmm. update them. Think of them as sort of your external board of directors, if you will. What about your family? How do you keep your family on board and connected and and, uh, appreciative and expressing to them your love for them when you're trying to make a positive impression when you're first starting out in a new role? Well, this is something that we talked about in your total leadership class at Wharton, didn't we, Stu? Um, About thinking about all of the different fears and sectors of your life. And I mean, everybody might categorize it differently. For me, I have 10. I've got family, I've got work, health, friends, community, learning, hobbies, nature, spiritual, and time alone. So those 10 spheres. And, you know, people talk about work-life balance a lot. And, you know, in my opinion, work-life balance is not achieved on a daily basis. 
you have to look at it a bit more holistically, whether it's on a weekly or monthly basis, or maybe for some things, maybe it's annual. But or a lifetime. Indeed. Um, and so I think that it's really imperative as you're going through any sort of big change, because let's face it, changing jobs next to getting married, divorce, having a child, buying a home, the death of somebody close to you, it's probably right up there with one of the big stressors and big changes in one's life. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, as in most things in life, when people talk about what are the keys to success, I always think communication. So communicate with the people who are most important and closest to you and say, gosh, you guys, you know, over the next few months, I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time than normal assimilating into this new job. And it might require some additional travel. It might require some flexibility. And, you know, I think families and kids in particular are really excited to feel part of that dialogue and understand what their parents are going through. Your spouse wants to be supportive. So I think don't hold it in. Talk about it and get their ideas. I mean, it's funny. Just yesterday, uh, it was President's Day. I had several hours of work I had to do. My kids were off from school. My husband was home from work. I really wanted to spend time with my family, but I also had to do some work. And so I said to them, guys, how can we figure this out? I want to spend as much time with you as possible, but I also want to get some work done. And it was my son who had the idea of, hey, could we come into your office and we can entertain ourselves and play while you do your work and then we can go to the museum together as a family. And that's what we did. And so, you know, it's amazing. Kids have such creative ideas and they're so supportive. And so don't be afraid to leverage them. To engage them in the process of, uh, of problem solving, to resolve those conflicts. But sometimes it's, it's harder than that when, hey, mom, I'm starting a new school and you're starting a new job. Which is more important to you? Don't answer that yet, Jenna. I, I, want, I want listeners to hold on to that. And any other thoughts about what it's like to be in a new executive role and to be successful, not just in your work and to prove yourself and to, to make it worth your while and, and worth your, your company, your, your new colleagues. And I want to note that my wife who is a clinical psychologist, her dissertation research at the University of Michigan uh, was about executive role transitions and their impact on families. So she did, her dissertation was called, you can look this up, folks, A Psychological Assessment of the Effects of Job Transfers on Executives and Their Families by Hallie Borston Friedman, University of Michigan Clinical Psychology, PhD, Um, And what she found in her study was that after repeated transfers, there's a negative impact on the family Mm -hmm. because of all the movement. What's your take on that, Jenna? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, not surprisingly, people fall into one of two camps when I reach out to them about opportunities that involve relocation. There are those individuals for whom, and we have a lot of them in the technology arena here in Silicon Valley, as there are many of them also in the financial services sector in New York who simply will not move. They feel like, Mm -hmm. gosh, I'm in the hotbed of what my industry does and it's all about, and I would be crazy to leave that. Um, And then there are others for whom they say, gosh, you know what? When you make a change, it kind of makes life new and exciting again, and it almost sort of extends Hmm. time when you're in a new place experiencing new things, and they're really up for the challenge. I do find, however, there are 
generally a few ages of children where folks are a bit more loath to make a move, mm-hmm. not surprisingly in the high school years. Mm-hmm. If you have kids that are happily ensconced in their schools and thriving, a lot of families will say, you know what, I'm not going to I'm not going to change anything up. It might just be too deleterious for mm-hmm. our family and mm-hmm. for our children. Um, but you know, one of my one of my best friends is the child uh, whose parents moved quite a bit when he was young, and he actually went to Wharton himself. And he ended up being a fabulously successful partner at Goldman because I think he's just so adaptable and has such high EQ. So I think if done well, it can be a real positive. But I certainly respect uh, for some people, it's just not in the cards. It's not in the cards to move because it's going to have, you, you can anticipate a negative impact on your family life, and so you, you choose not to. Exactly. I think there are probably ways to manage it, um, involving kids in the, the process to get their buy-in mm-hmm. uh, early on can be can be one tact. I've seen that be successful for families. Yeah, no, I, um, I heard you talk about that before the break, and I, I want to underscore that. I'm glad you're bringing that up again, how important it is to, to involve them, but at, at different ages, right? Uh, young, young children are probably not capable of that sort of uh, um, understanding and, and contribution to the family discussion about you know the, such a, a monumental choice to move, for example. Um, at, at what age do you see the kids seem to be most uh, ready to participate in that process? I've seen kids as young as seventh or eighth grade who are really mature who say, gosh, you know, moving to California, I could all of a sudden play soccer year-round outside. Or, you know mm-hmm. what, I'm starting to feel a little bit stymied in this small town I'm living in right now, and moving to a different city could be really exciting, or even moving abroad. You know, we obviously move executives all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some kids can be mature enough to understand that and realize the advantages. Um, I think you really just have to know your child and know what you know what might be too scary for them. So if I can just stay on this for one, one more question about this. For, for those... Uh, transitions that don't work because of family conflicts, like you move and your kids are miserable, your spouse is miserable, and you know, or her job or his job doesn't work out, or your kids are not happy because they are missing their friends. Do you do you get involved in any of that kind of um, uh, reparative or adapting activity? Is that a part of what your role is, or once the transition's made, do you kind of step out and leave it to the to the to the people involved to to work out those uh, adaptations and changes. So we typically we certainly stay in very close touch with our successful candidates as they onboard and assimilate into the organization, and mm-hmm. frankly, many of them become clients of ours as mm-hmm. we help them build out their their teams. Mm-hmm. Um, we will often make introductions or help them get into schools that they might be applying to, or provide uh, resources to help connect them. Um, but you know, it's really interesting because of all of the dozens of people that I've moved for jobs. It is a very, very small number that have not ultimately been happy because of the move. Hmm. Um, I'd say it's in the small minority of cases where that tends to be. Uh, because I think by the time you get there, you've had so many meetings and you know the, the team and the company so well. Your spouse and kids have come out for several visits. Hmm. And so it's been thought about and agonized over and analyzed. And um, the family has come to a, a cohesive decision. So the key is, as you said, communication and to involve all family members because, of course, it's going to affect their lives in a big way. Yeah, 
and uh, you know, and I know some families are not above bribery. You know, hey, one of the great things if we move to this area where we can have a big backyard is guess what? You can get the dog you always wanted. Mm. <laughs> For example, you know, you've got to think what 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 is the currency your child is operating under, and <laughs> right. um, what might well, speak their language. Yeah, it has to be a win. For them, right? I mean, that's uh, that is what we uh, what we what we teach about in the total leadership class, and is is helping people to see that any choice they make about the investment of their attention or their energy or their time, uh, the more you think about the impact that that's having on other people around you who you care about, and not just at work, but in all the different parts, the more likely you're going to be successful. That's right. That's right. And I think the other thing that really resonated with me personally from Total Leadership is the idea that at the end of the day, time is all each of us has. And so you really need to manage that, frankly, ruthlessly, if you want to be able to fit in everything that you want to be able to fit in. And um, so you really need to be thoughtful and not reactive to things coming at you, Mm -hmm. but be much more proactive about how you want to expend your energy and share your time. Indeed. That's why the book I wrote following Total Leadership is called Leading the Life You Want. And it's all about that idea, how you understand what matters most to you, to the people around you, and, and how you bring them along with you so that you're making the choices that are right for you and, and the people who matter most to you and, and not being, you know, f- moved about, in, you know, at, 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 the, uh, at the whim of outrageous fortune, but, you know, take some kind of control uh, wherever you can uh, mm-hmm. to, to invest in what matters most. And it's interesting you mentioned that, Stu, because we've done some research here at Russell Reynolds around the next generation of leadership and what's important to people. And I know you've done some similar research at Wharton. And interestingly, there's a real differential between what we hear from women and what we hear from men. Mm -hmm. And I happen to believe, personally, there's never been a better time in the history of the world to be a woman professionally. And yet we all know that there's lots of room for improvement. We look at the Fortune 1000. We see that 5.6% of CEOs are women. We see that 11.5% of CFOs are women. Um, And yet when we ask people, what is your primary motivation for working? Only 16% of women say supporting my family is my primary motivation, whereas for men you get double that, 31%, so nearly double that number. Mm And that's in spite of more than 50% of women are the primary breadwinners for their families these days. And so I think the the conversation is changing quite a bit around what's most important. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves over the next generation. Um, so how can we fill the pipeline with a more diverse array of candidates so that those numbers, those terrible numbers that you just cited about... Um, how few women are rising to the top in the CFO chain and the CEO chain and, and, and people of color as well. What, what, what are you doing about that? What can we do about that? So let me answer that in two parts. There's the what we're doing today about it. And then I think for many of us listening, probably one of the most important jobs we all have outside the office is raising our sons and daughters. And I think there are some things that we can do in that domain too. But professionally here at Russell Reynolds, one of the key things I tell my clients, because diversity is something that every organization that we talk to is clamoring for. Um, And I have found great success in doing the following, which is, as I put it, ask one more question. And what I mean by that is when we 
source for candidates in the market. And we're talking to somebody who we think might have some good ideas. Generally, people tend to give ideas of people who are like themselves, which is human nature and nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But when I follow on their suggestions and I say, gosh, all these ideas are so great and helpful. Thank you so much. We also want to really try to solve for diversity in this hire. We want to make sure we're providing a diverse slate of candidates to our client. Is there anybody you can think of, whether it's a woman or a historically underrepresented minority, with whom you used to work, who you'd say was really talented, that might also be a good person for me to follow up with? Mm -hmm. I would say 90% of the time, that person will say to me, gosh, you know what? There was this woman I used to work with. I don't know where she is and I've lost touch with her. Mm -hmm. Here's her name and she was fabulous and you should try to track her down. Hmm. And so it's asking one more question. That question. That can be really impactful. It yeah. really can be. Well, that and that's going to expand the pool of people that are available to you. Jenna, we have a number of people who want to speak to you, so I'm going to uh, turn to one of them right now. Uh, Lee is calling from Virginia. There's a lot of Lees in Virginia, I'm sure. Hey, welcome to Work and Life. Lee, uh, what's your what's your question? Thank you so much, Stu. And Jenna, I mean, just amazing guest and great interview. Really appreciate the tremendous insight. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you. So question about uh, moving from public se- sector to private sector. I'm sure a lot of, uh, especially right now, the government is moving through a transition where it's uh, getting smaller and therefore a lot a lot of work, more work, more demand in the private sector. Thoughts about, you know, through that, you know, some maybe key tips, because I'm, or do you see that as very similar moving from private sector to private sector or Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see the pub- moving from public sector to private sector? What are some key tips, thoughts on that? Sure. Thanks for the question, Lee. I have a number of colleagues who work exactly at this intersection, and we're always trying to help to initiate a transfer of thought leadership from those two sectors, one to the other and back again. Um, and I think that right now there's really a clamoring of people who have public sector expertise who can serve in a variety of functions, namely government affairs, corporate communications within companies. Um, So without knowing more about your background, what I would say generally is look for people who have made a similar um, ascension or transition and get their advice. Target companies that you think might be good um, targets for you. And um, again, it goes back to the network, thinking through who you know, who might be able to be helpful in that domain. And um, if there are organizations that, again, will really pull to those needs. But I think mm-hmm. that um, your your background is very much in demand. I will say that it is harder to make that change when somebody has, let's say, 25, 30 years of experience. There are certain inflection points in one's career where pivot points, perhaps, where they're easier to make a change from public to private or vice versa. Um, but I think it's a great question and, and certainly something that's very doable. I, I uh, thank you for calling Lee. And I want to now move because we've only got a, a couple minutes left here. Um, uh, Jenna, tell, tell us just a bit about your passion for inculcating the value of financial independence in young women, which is a, a part of the diversity story that's such an important one. Yeah, well, I have been very fortunate in my life to have two of the most important women in my life who have impacted me are my mother and my mother-in-law. And my mother, because from a very young age, she 
extolled the virtue of economic independence and made sure I did not suffer from what I call the Prince Charming complex. And I think it's so imperative that all of us are telling our young girls um, that until women get to, I believe, 50-50 in terms of economic mm-hmm. parity, it's hard to truly be equal. And so I think that setting them up by finding, and this applies to boys and girls, by the way, finding a passion, being excellent at something, being an expert in something, and considering the economics, economic implications of what you want to do professionally. Um, and then I say my mother-in-law, because she was somebody who, really a woman ahead of her time, who raised two sons to be incredible feminists. And if it weren't for my husband, I certainly uh, would not have the career that I do. Mm-hmm. And so I think the importance of marrying well, especially if you want to have kids, and by marrying well, I mean marrying somebody who truly treats you as an equal. Um, and then I think we need to redefine success as a parent and not having guilt. Um, you know, I know a lot of women are saddled with guilt of not doing 100%. And I would argue that sometimes doing 100% for your kids may be more disabling than enabling. And so, mm-hmm. you know, every, every family is different and every situation is different. But knowing what you can outsource and what you, you sort of you go back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what's going to be the most important thing for you to contribute to your family And how can you do that meaningfully? And then it goes back to managing your calendar ruthlessly because, as we said earlier, time is all you have. And so I think that thinking about those things throughout the life of Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. a woman, and frankly, I think boys and men, too, will give us all so much more freedom. and um, and fulfillment. And that's that is what's happening. I'm I'm happy to report from what I can see in terms of uh, the generational changes and cultural values. We've only got like 30 seconds left here, Jenna, and I want to ask you a question. I've been asking all my guests this year, and that is, how do you bring compassion into your work and in the rest of your life, but especially in your work? Well, so I will answer this as briefly as possible. But three years ago. Um, we, my husband and I received shocking news that our then three-year-old daughter had a brain tumor. And thankfully, she is doing awesome and has been healed. Um, but that experience of being in the hospital and seeing what all of the medical providers from the surgeons down to the residents and nurses and even, frankly, the, the people, the phlebotomists and the people who took out our trash in the hospital, seeing the compassion and the care that they lead with on a daily basis really infused my career and my day-to-day life with a new level of compassion. And every day when I have people reach out to me about wanting to make a change and who come in to talk to me about a job opportunity, I always think, you know, I think to, you know, my husband, when he gets a call like that, it's a topic of conversation at the dinner table that night. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't take it lightly. And again, it goes back to the very privileged role that we as executive search Mm -hmm. consultants have in the lives of candidates and clients. And so I think whatever we do in life, you know, I'm not saving lives, but do it. You're having an impact, Jenna. We we have to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for being my guest on the show tonight and for being my friend for these many years. If people want to find out more about what you and Russell Reynolds are doing, how can they do that? 10 seconds. Go to RussellReynolds.com. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Jenna, thank you so much. It's really been a treat. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the insightful and super helpful Jenna Fisher. And now I have a challenge for you. 
an invitation to pick up on what was perhaps the most important theme in Jenna's wise words, and that is leveraging your network. A network that, of course, you have to cultivate continually. So here's the challenge, the invitation for you to think about what you can do over the next few days, a small step that you could take that would help to enrich the strength of your network, of the people who care about you and want to help you, and people who are interested in your growth and in whom you have an interest in trying to help and to be a part of your world. So what can you do over the next few days that would build, strengthen the network of support surrounding you in your professional life, in your life in general? No one gets anywhere on their own entirely. This we know. And people who are socially isolated, well, they, they have a rougher time of it. And it's up to each one of us to be cultivating our networks over time. So let's follow up on what Jenna was advising and take a step that you might not otherwise have taken to strengthening your network over the next couple of days. And if you do try that, let me know about it. I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or you can uh, message me on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. I'm also interested in hearing from you if you've got ideas about who you'd like to hear on this show. So let me know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.